Welcome to the Days for Girls podcast, a show about breaking barriers for women and girls around the world. I'm your host, Jessica Williams, Chief Development and Communications Officer at Days for Girls International. At Days for Girls, we believe in a world where periods are never a problem. We are on a mission to shatter the stigma and limitations associated with menstruation by increasing access to sustainable period products and menstrual health education for all people with periods. Today's episode is with Nora Cara. Nora is an attorney at DLA Piper, and she was selected to spend her first year at the firm working exclusively on global pro bono matters. Now, outside of her litigation practice, she continues to work on project development for New Perimeter, the firm's nonprofit affiliate, focusing on menstrual rights and policies, intimate partner and gender-based violence, and women's education advancement. In this episode, Nora talks about a project she's been leading in collaboration with Days for Girls, where a team of attorneys is drafting a multi-country study on the laws and policies related to menstrual equity in the education sector, with guidance from Days for Girls experts and affiliates. I just love this conversation. Can't wait to share it with you. Now let's go on to the show. Hello, Nora. Welcome to the Days for Girls podcast. How are you today? Hi, Jessica. I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm excited to chat with you and hear more about your work because you're doing some really interesting things in partnership with Days for Girls, actually. So I can't wait to share that with our listeners. Yes, definitely. I'm happy to give you a glimpse into what we're doing. And I'm so glad to be collaborating with Days for Girls. Amazing. Well, let's dive right in. So first question I always ask is, where are you calling from? Where do you live? Yes. So I am based in Boston, Massachusetts, um, but I'm not actually from Boston. I'm from Texas and have kind of lived everywhere over the past decade or so. Mm -hmm. And what we're going to talk about today is actually not your day job. This is a volunteer service that you provide and you uh, have a completely different type of work that you're doing as your day job. So let's get that out of the way. What do you do for your day job just for folks who are interested? Yes, very different work. Um, I'm an attorney at the global law firm DLA Piper in its litigation group. And I currently represent life science and pharmaceutical companies. So that is my day job, but I do come from a prior short career in global health. And so I'm always trying to diversify my legal practice and develop new legal skills, connecting law and policy and the health and human rights spaces. Mm -hmm. And so is that how you got connected to New Perimeter, which is for our listeners, it's the nonprofit affiliate of the law firm DLA Piper. So is that how you got involved with them? Yes. I was very lucky actually to start with the firm DLA Piper in a fellowship position last year. So I got to devote all of my time towards global pro bono work. um, And that involves working with immigrants who are seeking asylum or other forms of humanitarian relief here in the U.S., working with survivors of domestic violence, and also working with New Perimeter, which, as you mentioned, is the firm's nonprofit affiliate and delivers pro bono assistance in several underserved regions around the world. Yeah. And you're doing a project right now with Days for Girls. And so why don't you tell us a little bit about that project and what some of the research is that you're conducting right now? Sure. So um, 
As I said, we're very lucky to be collaborating with Days for Girls on this project. Although my day job is very different, it's really been important to me to continue my work and passions in the global health space, specifically with regard to menstrual health. And so I pitched this project to the firm, to New Perimeter, and it is a multi-country study that analyzes the legal and policy landscape of menstrual supports in the education sectors of 12 different countries. So we focus specifically on the laws, policies, and government-funded programs that are coming up in each of these 12 countries um, to support menstrual health for school children. Mm. And when you're researching these policies and, and laws, what are you looking for? So as you know, menstruation is really closely linked to public health, education, gender equality, poverty, and misinformation about periods often leads to women and girls. And I say women and girls, but I, I really mean all, individu- all individuals who menstruate. Um, this misinformation makes them more vulnerable to gender discrimination and sexual violence. And so menstrual health is really well connected to all of these other facets of their lives and can lead to school absenteeism, workplace absenteeism, and overall economic dependence. And so in this study, we first analyzed the human rights instruments that underpin menstruation. So the right to clean water or basic hygiene needs, the right to education, the right to work. Um, And we cover the current laws, policies, and programs that focus on period product distribution or menstrual health curricula, um, toilets and disposal and water facilities in these countries, as well as any behavior change and social support initiatives that have been implemented. Hmm. So you're doing all of this research. Are you talking with different experts in these countries? How are you going about collecting your information? Yes. So we have a great team of 20 attorneys um, based in a few different countries that are working on this report. And we're so, so lucky that we are able to collaborate with Days for Girls as we've been able to interview experts on the ground in each of these countries who, you know, whose day job it really is to work among these communities and the girls who are receiving inadequate menstrual supports. And so we've learned from them what implementation has looked like on the ground of these programs and policies, how they have impacted education and economic advancement, and also how the COVID pandem- COVID-19 pandemic has really disrupted the localized delivery of information and supplies and medical care. Mm-hmm. So I take it this was uh, a study that started Was it, did it start during COVID-19 or was this something that was going on prior to COVID-19 and you kind of shifted your focus to look at the effects of COVID on menstrual health? So this study started towards the end of last year, 2021. And so of course we're very much still in the pandemic. Um, And so we wanted to have a focus on how the pandemic has affected the space Um, You know, we see articles in the news every day about the impacts of COVID on the healthcare systems of various countries, economic downturns, and wanted to see how that has really affected women and girls who 
undergo such a normal biological process every month um, and what that's done in terms of access to products. With school shutdowns, girls have not been able to attend school where they generally obtain subsidized products. Um, And I'm sure in a bunch of these countries, the nonprofit organizations have also been impacted in terms of funding and operations. So we wanted to take a look at that. Mm-hmm. And can you tell us, I know you haven't published the report yet, but can you tell us some of the outcomes that you're seeing? Yes. So the report delves into all types of interventions that have focused on the menstrual health space. So that could be with regard to period product distribution, curriculum in schools, hygiene facilities, or behavior change. And so I can share a few interesting insights that we found so far. So for example, with regard to period product distribution, I think a lot of folks saw recently that the Scottish Parliament approved the Period Products Free Provision Act in 2021, which mandated the provision of period products for free to anyone who needs them in public spaces. So this was very widely published and publicized in the media, but What we're finding through our research is such initiatives have occurred in so many other countries at various times. So Kenya, for example, began a free pad distribution to school children back in 2011. And South Africa's Department of Women, Youth, and Persons with Disabilities has also announced that it will be distributing free period products in schools. And with regard to education, you know, there's still a lack of school curricula outside of the general sex ed or sexual reproductive health umbrella. So very little curricula actually focuses on menstrual health itself with regard to product usage and disposal and destigmatizing the topic. So we're seeing a lot of very creative and interesting interventions occurring, such as in Mexico, there is the Menstruacion Digna movement, which has advocated for free products in schools and trainings for teachers on how to discuss menstruation with school students. And similarly, in Nepal, the Ministry of Education is drafting a revised school curriculum so that children are taught about menstruation and taboos in classes beginning at grade four, which is a lot earlier than school children often receive health education. So even just from some of those examples, you know, you're able to see how law, passing certain laws, drafting certain policies, or having government-funded programs have have been able to impact the education sector and school-going children with regard to menstrual health. Mm -hmm. And what what you're looking at is really the area of our work that creates sustainable change, right? Like if we, if we are able to change policy and the way that laws are crafted or, or curricula are, are developed for schools, right? We can have long-term sustainable change that can have impacts for years to come or generations to come. Exactly. Exactly. And I think in this space, very little has been done on the policy and legal side of menstrual health. You know, we see a lot on the public health component coming out of academia, and I think only recently there's been this shift towards looking at more of the legal and policy uh, underpinnings of menstruation and how we can really bring about that sustained change 
um, which I think comes from both the national and local government levels being involved. And so that's what we hope to do with this report is give a snapshot of what are those government-backed interventions that are occurring and being put in place, as well as how they're being sustained, what the progress has looked like in terms of increasing access to menstrual supports for school children, and then also hoping for it to be a resource for multidisciplinary stakeholders in other contexts in other countries who might be able to learn from such initiatives and implement similar ones in their settings as well. Mm-hmm. Can you think of an example of a policy or, or a, a law that you have looked into that would give us an example of how how big of an impact this has on women and girls around the world, you know, in the countries that you've researched? Yeah. Was your question law or policy or just mm-hmm. law? Law or policy, something that really gives um, our listeners an idea of the types of laws that might exist that we aren't even aware of. I think a lot of people, even in the United States, don't realize that they're like that there's a tampon tax, you know, or right, that right. little things like that that maybe would <laughs> something, something, you know, interesting that people might not know about that maybe you've uncovered um, that has a systemic effect on menstrual health? Yeah. So I think here I can give two examples. Um, One is the criminalization of Chopadi in Nepal. And I may not be pronouncing that correctly, but Chopadi is the practice of secluding menstruating women and girls to huts outside of the house whereby they are exposed to toxic fumes, smoke inhalation, pests, and even sexual violence. And so we often see in the news that several women and girls every single year are dying of this seclusionary practice. In Nepal, however, in 2005, the Supreme Court actually declared this practice illegal. But it was not until 2018 when criminal penalties were attached And the first arrest, I believe, only occurred quite recently in 2019 or 2020. So unfortunately, this practice still persists in parts of the country, even though it has been illegalized and criminalized. And that's in part due to perpetuated social stigmas and patriarchal notions surrounding menstruation. But I think it very much is a step in the right direction to draw attention to this harmful practice and to take a stance on it on a national level. On the other hand, I think as a result of COVID, the COVID-19 pandemic, we have seen some interesting progress here in the United States. Um, So through the CARES Act, the federal government has now classified pads and tampons for the first time as medical expenses. And uh, they are eligible for reimbursement via health savings accounts and flexible spending accounts. And this was not a thing, you know, before the CARES Act was passed, um, thanks to COVID. So we'll we'll have to see if this progress is here to stay, hopefully as the pandemic passes. But I think these are two, two examples of laws and policies in very different parts of the world um, that have had some national attention, international attention and uh and has shown a spotlight on uh, menstrual health. Yeah, absolutely. Those are two great examples. Um, I wouldn't have even thought of those, but 
yeah, I, you know, have heard chapatis uh, illegal in Nepal. And I've often wondered how they would enforce that as a criminal behavior. Right. Yeah. And I, I think enforcement is the key term in that, uh, there's, you know, a difference between writing and passing a law and actually having it enforced. And so that's what we're seeing in certain contexts. Um, and what we highlight in this report, actually, by speaking with local experts on the ground is we're trying to learn when when such initiatives come about, how are they actually operating on the ground and what is the progress looking like? Um, so hopefully this, this report will serve as a resource to people interested in working in this space. Mm-hmm. It sounds amazing. I can't wait for it to come out and uh, we'll definitely highlight that uh, at Days for Girls. So I'm looking forward to sharing that with everyone, you know, pivoting a little bit and, and getting more into some of your background, you know, I'd like to, to learn more about the work that you do because it's a really interesting angle on social change. When you take, like you're combining your, your law degree and, your passion for social change, particularly in, in uh, the menstrual health sector. And you're, you're figuring out a way to marry those two and make a difference. And so um, I'm always curious about people's background and how they got into that. And so could you take us a little deeper into your educational background and some of the personal experiences that first got you to thinking about this topic? Sure. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, I think my interest in this topic dates quite some time back um, to when I was an undergrad in college. I had spent a summer in college working in Kampala, Uganda, and I was interning with an organization called Girl Child Network. Um, I I had wanted to go to Uganda um, because my mother's side of the family was born and raised in Uganda. And my father's side is from Tanzania. So although I'm actually of Indian origin, I really wanted to go and explore my roots in East Africa. So my role um, at the time as an intern was to develop a child rights curriculum that educated adolescent girls um, on labor laws in the country. And so I would travel to what are called community clubs around Kampala. And these were usually places where girls who were outside of school, girls who could not attend school, went for extracurricular education and support. And many of these girls shared with me that they had to engage in what was called sugar daddying or transactional sexual relationships with older men in order to get money to buy basic needs. And among those basic needs were pads. So I was appalled. I had learned this for the first time and I was enraged. Um, You know, in the United States, we have our fair share of issues as well. And many individuals here face period poverty as well. But coming from a relatively privileged background, I had never thought about not being able to access pads, uh, let alone needing to put my safety at issue in order to access pads. So that experience really sparked something inside of me. And I knew I couldn't just sit in my privilege and not do anything more on this issue. So after college, I applied for a Fulbright grant to carry out an original research project on menstrual health and hygiene in India. And I wanted to work in New Delhi because 
back then when I was reading about the issue of menstrual hygiene management, as it was termed, it was always couched in terms of rural countries, rural areas. And I wanted to investigate whether the menstrual health stigmas and taboos crossed rural lines and actually persisted among urban communities as well. So I went to India and I I received the grant. I went to India and I spent a year there traveling to eight government schools um, where I was able to work with almost 700 schoolgirls. And I administered a survey in English and Hindi to these schoolgirls. They were around age 10 to 18. Um, And the questions in the survey related to menstrual taboos, wash agents, water sanitation hygiene agents, period products, and school absenteeism. I was really trying to understand the girl's current knowledge base on menstruation and where that was coming from. And I also coded their responses against information on their personal and family demographics, religion, education, and socioeconomic status. I wanted to see if there were any trends. That's fascinating. I'm, I'm like, what did you find? <laughs> Tell <Yes>. me. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> yes. So initially, you know, I, I was receiving great resistance to go into these schools. I'm Indian myself. I'm fluent in Hindi, but I appeared to be a Westerner, you know, coming into these government schools and wanting to talk about such a taboo topic. So it, it was really difficult to work in the schools and have the girls feel comfortable sharing with me such information. But the results were very interesting. I was able to learn about the top restrictions that these girls faced when menstruating. And some of them were being banned from entering temples and mosques and other places of worship, from playing sports. They were even taught that they were unable to eat certain foods like pickle due to the myth of contaminating it. They were not able to share bedrooms or common spaces with others, and sometimes they were not able to attend school. Um, So it it was very sad and interesting to learn about these myths that these girls were being forced to adhere to based on sociocultural notions of menstruation. Mm -hmm. I've heard that before, a lot of those traditions or beliefs that have been held and passed down. And you know, I think we all have them, even growing up in the United States. Um, yes. You know, they're everywhere. And so it must have been really interesting doing that. Um, what a fascinating career you've had. It really, it really there is this through line that you can see with your work and how it ties into your, your current work at DLA Piper now. Um, it's really interesting. And you've done this work all over the world. And I think one of the challenges that a lot of people have is uh, they focus on this work in one particular country or area. And you've seen this issue through the lens of a variety of different cultures and traditions and countries. And I'm, I'm curious, you know, knowing what you know now, are you hopeful for the future of women and girls and our uh, ability to care for ourselves, uh, you know, during our menstrual cycle and that the dignity we get from being able to do that, being able to lift us up in ways that maybe we weren't previously able to 
or give us opportunities we weren't previously able to access? Are you, are you hopeful about the future? I guess really is the bottom line question that I'm asking. Yes, I I am hopeful about the future. I think you know reading and learning about all of these taboos and environments where there are inadequate menstrual supports can be really disheartening and can make us feel a bit helpless when we really do want to affect change in the space. But, you know, I, I live in the United States and I'm not uh, integrated with each of these cultures and country contexts. And I can certainly not claim to be an expert in this space. But as I've been researching um, the interventions for this multi-country study, it has made me hopeful that there is a lot that is currently being done to improve supports and to also work towards behavior change, with which I think is certainly one of the most necessary uh, in terms of being able to bring about sustainable difference and change in this space. Mm-hmm. And so that that's been helpful. And and you know, I, I can share a personal anecdote as well as when I was growing up even in the United States, there was so much shame and stigma surrounding menstruation. I remember that when I started my period, I was attending an all-girls school and still there was so much shame. We used to hide pads and tampons in our sweatshirts when we would go to the restroom and it was never a topic talked about. We had no educational curricula on menstruation itself beyond the general sex ed programming. And so that's certainly changing um, in the United States and in other countries as we look to what the education sectors are doing. And hopefully with this report, um, whoever is interested will be able to learn more about what those creative curricula are and be able to implement them in other settings. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, if people want to connect with you and learn more about the work that you're doing, how can they find you? Yes, um, I am on LinkedIn. So please feel free to send me a message on LinkedIn. And if you'd like to learn more about New Perimeter, you can visit newperimeter.com. And that is the website for the firm's nonprofit affiliate. Awesome. And we will put those links in the show notes for this episode. Nor, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's just awesome to talk to you. And I can't wait to, to see the report when it comes out. Thank you. I really enjoyed our conversation. And I'm very excited to get this report launched and uh, hopefully in the hands of everyone interested. The Days for Girls podcast is produced by Days for Girls International. For show notes and resources mentioned in this episode, visit daysforgirls.org forward slash podcast. If you'd like to support the work we do on the show, leave a rating or a review wherever you listen, subscribe to the show, and share episodes on social media or with your friends. To learn more about Days for Girls and to join our global movement, please visit daysforgirls.org. Thank you for listening. See you next time.